Welcome back everyone to 42 to Doomsday. I'm Rob. And I'm Mark. And in light of nothing really happening in the world of Doctor Who, we've wheeled out our old faithful top five countdown, this time looking at the underrated episodes of New Doctor Who. Before we uh, fight over what little scraps of news there are in the world of Doctor Who at the moment, uh, you've just returned from a sojourn uh, cruising the South Pacific looking for missing episodes. I didn't find any, but I did come across a volcano. Did uh, You wouldn't have been able to find too many uh, just sitting by the horizon pool with a pina colada, would you? And getting caught in the rain? No. 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 So you are back from a little holiday and uh, hopefully refreshed? Yes, refreshed. Uh, I had no internet access for 12 days, which was liberating. Some passengers I noticed were walking around like addicts, clutching their phones, looking for any sign of a signal. Just just holding it to the sky. <laughs> holding it to the sky. <laughs> pleading with the sky gods for, a, for a, just a signal, anything. Signal, you know, with an aluminium foil cap on their head. But uh, I went to El Natural, had no internet, and uh, yes, it was great. I read uh, Engines of War by George Mann. I finished uh, Keith Richards' autobiography, uh, Life. Amazingly, he did remember more than three years, so uh, it was quite a good book. <laughs> it was actually ghost-written. Funny about that. The bigger words weren't Keith, I understand, but very interesting insight to the size of Mick Jagger's Todger. Uh, in that book oh, lovely yes and I'm halfway through Alastair Reynolds uh, book Harvest of Time I think it's called with John Pertwee and uh, Roger Delgado not literally in it but you know the, 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 it's, the, it's, it's a seance it's a seance <laughs> yeah live by seance Alastair Reynolds has <laughs> conducted a seance with, uh, <laughs> with uh, Delgado and Pertwee the dead doctors that's the next special <laughs> Moffat's going to write yes I had a very enjoyable time snorkeling uh, went snorkeling with some sea turtles as well so that was uh were there any were there any film cans strapped to the backs of these sea turtles? No, there wasn't. <laughs> no, look, everything's not omni rumor, Rob. You have to move on. <laughs> There's other things in life. No, 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 no. I've renamed my daughters Omni and Rumor. <laughs> I would have thought you renamed your nuts Omni and Bollocks. <laughs> what sort of rating is on tonight's episode? I wonder. All right, let's move on. Let's move on. So. Uh, there, uh, there has been some uh, news uh, this week, Mark. The uh, the Sony email leak, which uh, you know caught the world unawares and by storm late last year, um, has come to WikiLeaks. WikiLeaks is now, <laughs> as WikiLeaks is prone to do, it's amazing what you can get done in the top room of the Ecuadorian embassy in London <laughs> with only a treadmill for comfort. <laughs> <That's it. laughs> Hello, Julian, if you're listening. Much to my surprise, uh, I was trawling Twitter and there was some mention of uh, talk uh, amongst these uh, Sony emails about uh, a Doctor Who movie. Oh, look, I had a cursory glance over those emails. Is there anything to talk about, really? other than Not particularly. I mean, look, if they are going to do a Doctor Who movie, uh, I think the next logical, uh, I suppose, break where they could do one is when Capaldi leaves and mm-hmm. make the new Doctor's uh, new adventure a big standalone adventure, which is what they've been working up to anyway with Deep Breath on the Cinema and Day of the Doctor. So I suppose that would be, in my, in my opinion, a logical place to have it. It's interesting that uh, Chairman Moffat uh, has an eight-year plan. Joseph Stalin had a five-year plan. Moffat has an eight-year plan just to get up one over the top of, uh, uh, <laughs> of Stalin. <laughs> Well, no, not not no, not that Moffat was mentioned, but uh, there, there is mention of uh, some sort of eight-year plan, which, A is interesting if it's true and b 
it's never smart to set these sort of things in concrete, of course. I thought the eight-year plan was going to be a four-year plan if David Tennant left, because weren't they thinking of canning the series once he left? So that's interesting, I suppose, from a... Uh, I don't know, really, just an interesting standpoint. Yeah. I mean, there's not, there, there wasn't much there. It's, just, it's interesting that, I suppose, Sony... Uh, well, some executives in Sony thought that there was, a, you know, Doctor Who. Think that Doctor Who was an explorable property, uh, and it appears that BBC Worldwide would, you know, love to jump feet first into the idea of a of a movie. Yeah. But uh, the people uh, at the coalface in Cardiff are resisting valiantly. And, and let's be honest, uh, Fox probably aren't going to touch it. Neither is Universal after the telly movie. So Sony is the next bride of the altar, aren't they? I mean, I, I suppose we've discussed this before. Right? The, the idea of the show. Uh, transitioning to uh, you know the, the world of movies mm. uh, I, I, look ideally its home is uh, on television uh, you know if it, if it made the transition to movies you'd find um, Doctor Who in limbo for a lot of the time like Star Trek is at the moment you know with in the absence of an ongoing TV series Star Trek is a movie every three or four years or two or three years and, and, and a series of books and, and, and comics which you know for a property that's it's rising 50 years is um not much really when you think about it that's enough in my personal opinion because you know in the 90s it had next gen deep sleep 9 voyager enterprise i can't remember is that was that it uh yes yes that's it yeah and they went on for multiple seasons so surely the, the they've exhausted that uh you know that well how many times can you turn up on the planet robe <laughs> well this is true uh, no I, I would disagree actually that, that... why because I think that there's enough in the format of of Star Trek. The, I mean, the idea, the ideal format for Star Trek is to, you know, to split that infinitive and find new, find new species and peoples to meet and, and engage with and explore. Uh, I, I think. I mean, its format isn't as unlimited as Doctor Who, but I think within that format, there's enough potential to, you know, tell engaging stories with engaging characters. So did Buzz Lightyear of Star Command. <laughs> Why are you running on my parade for Mark? <laughs> I just think it's Doctor Who's time in the sun. Star Trek, you know, had their time in the sun in the 90s. It was all, you know, it was everywhere. And we were just stuck at home watching VHS tapes of Time in the Rani. So it's time for Doctor Who to shine. I think, you know, as long as a movie, I suppose, ties in and not like the telly movie did where it was regenerations at the beginning and, you know, sort of stopping the plot. Where, you know, Capaldi's last episode, Regenerate, Bang, like the 11th hour, just crack into a new story. And on the big screen, bigger, bolder, brighter. Perhaps. I mean, you could go down the route that The X-Files tried um, as a, a movie, which is a bridge between two seasons. Uh, but that never really caught on. They um, they did that once with, uh, was it Fight the Future? I think it was Fight the Future. Um, at the height of the show's popularity. Yeah. And then they, they sort of come back. But they never they never did that again. And I can, you can understand why. I mean, a punishing nine-month schedule or ten-month schedule, and then let's do a movie, and then let's get back into nine or ten months of the weekly grind of, of making television. So Let's just move on to the next one, where uh, this came out a few weeks ago, uh, while we're off the air. The Radio Times had a, uh, a poll for the uh, top ten new Who episodes over the last ten years, as voted by uh, 280,000 of Russell T. Davis's and Stephen Moffat's closest friends and relatives. Have you seen this list, Rob? I'm just scrolling through this list now. Quickly whiz through it. Blink, uh, number one. Number two, Vincent and the Doctor. Number three, Stolen Earth and Journey's End. Number four, Day of the Doctor. Number five, Empty Child, The Doctor Dances. Number six, Army of Ghosts, Doomsday. Number seven, Girl in the Fireplace. Number eight, Bad Wolf, Parting of the Ways. Number nine, Silence in the Library, Forest of the Dead. And number ten, The End of Time. Uh, Rob, your thoughts? 
on that list? One, it's a bit of a cheat to have uh, double episodes as one story. Yeah. A little bit, I suppose. Two, um, The Empty Child Doctor Dances should be at least three slots higher. Mm. Uh, Three, um, I think I'm right in my counting there. Three, The End of Time makes it into the top ten. I mean, come on. That's ridiculous. That's ludicrous. What would you replace out of that list? What would you swap out and swap in? Well, I'm surprised that the Cornell double uh, Human Nature and Family of Blood is nowhere within Cooey of this. Yeah. Um, that that should be in the top five or six. Mm. Dalek doesn't crack it mm. at all. Mm. Though I've actually come to reevaluate Dalek. I think the first 20 minutes is brilliant and the last 25 is pants. Uh, don't hurt me, Rob Sherman, but it's not your fault. Um, yeah, I think uh, Human Nature, Family of Blood definitely could, could make it into this. I think Listen is easily better than The End of Time. Absolutely, yeah. But it's like it's like the poll the Cardiff Chronicle did for the 50th. Mm. Everybody votes in, and of course, Day of the Doctor was number one. We, you know, in a couple of years' time, it won't be. And that's, well, that's it. And that, that's it. You know, polls come and go. I mean, if I had to swap mine, uh, some of those out, I would definitely uh, get rid of Stolen Earth, Army of Ghosts, Silence of the Library, and End of Time. And I would replace them, uh, like you said, with Listen, uh, Human Nature, Family of the Blood, and I'm cheating as well. I'd put mm. Dalek in there and also put in Satan Pit and Impossible Planet. Oh, for sure, definitely. And even Midnight would be cracking the bottom of that top ten as well. It's interesting, that I've just done a very quick count, that eight of these stories are all pre-the Moffat era. Mm. Uh, even though, having said that, Moffat has written <laughs> one... Uh, two, three, four, yeah, five, five, half of the stories. So uh, it's interesting that his, in terms of his writing, uh, Moffat dominates, but in terms of his era, mm. uh, overall it doesn't. Which is, uh, I suppose, which is interesting. Well, most of these stories actually have big key moments, aren't they? Like Stolen Earth is David Tennant regenerating into himself, into, into himself, <laughs> the narcissist. Day of the Doctor, fiftieth anniversary special, end of time. God help us. Bad Wolf parting of the ways, Eccleston goes. So, you know, it's like uh, the Green Death and, and Plant the Spiders. They've got key identifying moments in them, don't they? Mm. Well, I mean, you, you look at, say, Vincent and the Doctor and the Girl in the Fireplace. Of all those stories, they're the most personal and emotional stories mm. out of out of all of them. I mean, Blink is just very good storytelling. Day of the Doctor is event, you know, Doctor Who. Uh, the Empty Child and Doctor Dances is just a complete... A complete package that really works, but the girl in the fireplace and uh, and the Vincent and the Doctor, I find, uh, really wear their emotions on their sleeve to a very great extent. Mm. Um, and in an era where emotions rule and relationships uh, are near the top of you know the, the the showrunner's priorities, in a sense, it's interesting that you know only a couple of those. I mean, all the other stories have elements of that anyway, but uh, only two of those stories really sort of. Uh, make that make that top ten list. Yeah, let's see what that list looks like in fifteen years' time. Uh, yes, yes. Well, I mean, it'll. Uh, uh, you'll definitely see some of these stories drift way, 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 way out of the top ten, especially in the time. Honestly, all right. So let's move on to our uh, topic of the uh, episode: the underrated episodes of New Doctor Who. Returning to our earlier theme where we discussed underrated uh, episodes of classic Doctor Who, uh, this episode we're going to be looking at the underrated episodes of, of new Doctor Who. But before we jump into the uh, discussion, Mark, mm. how would you define uh, an underrated episode? One that doesn't appear in the upper echelons of polls 
or doesn't appear at lower echelons of polls. <laughs> like our classic podcast where we sort of looked at the good stuff in the middle. Um, that's how I've sort of determined uh, some of my stories. But also come up with my list and gone back and watched those stories. I haven't watched them again since the original transmission. And they made a small impact on me, if I can say that. But I wanted mm-hmm. to go back and just validate my initial reaction at the time. Um, I would say that uh, an underrated episode is one... It's, it's a story that isn't as flashy as the ones that catch the eye of the, the general public or the, you know, the, the hardcore new fans. I mean, everyone can rave about something like Blink, as we discussed before. But there, there are other stories out there that sort of get, get lost in all the hubbub around, about the stories around them. So, I mean, you might have something like Dalek, uh, where everyone goes, oh, oh my God, that's fantastic. Eccleston's performance you know, blows everyone off the screen and, and the themes that, that, that come up that Schumann's brought up. Uh, really warrant close attention, but there are you know other stories in series one, which um, are equally worthy of attention, but because of a number of factors might miss out on that attention. Mm. And it, it may be that they just lack that final polish. That they're, they're, they're solid, but they're not necessarily. They don't sparkle. We haven't uh, shared our lists with each other before this recording, so. If we have an entry we both have, we will call out Snap and we'll talk about it together. Would you like to go first then, Mark? Number five. My number five is The Beast Below. See, I'm not anti-Moffat. Everybody thinks I'm anti-Moffat and you're anti-Moffat, but we're not. We've got to be anti-something in life, Mark. Anyway, The Beast Below. I mean, the premise itself isn't exactly original um, as the space whale concept and storyline was floating around, literally floating around since the 80s. Uh, And it gets overlooked because... Let's be honest, the 11th hour was probably one of the best Doctor debuts since Spearhead from Space. Would you agree with that? I would agree with that, yes. In terms of impact, absolutely, yes. I mean, the premise itself is quite horrific when you think about it. A creature's being subjected to... Enslaved and subjected to unimaginable torture, uh, like watching Big Brother. It's almost like 12 years of Space Whale. (laughs) Yeah, 12 years of Space Whale, or watching Gravity. Uh, Well, you know, the whole of the UK populace is strapped on its back, and... Every five years, uh, a person over the age of 16 is informed about this poor space whale's predicament and either given a choice to forget about it or protest. And if you protest, you get fed to the whale. If you forget about it, you forget the last 20 minutes of when you found out about the space whale and you just keep carrying on with life. Um, but in Liz Ten's case, if she abd- abdicates, the whole Starship UK goes boom. And the Doctor himself is faced, I suppose, with a Genesis-type uh, situation where he's got three options. I mean, they're all horrible. But at the end of the day, he needed a companion to give him another point of view and to come up with a different solution, which was better than the ones he came up with himself. Matt Smith, in his early run of stories, is actually slightly more eccentric, where he's doing a lot more things with his hands and his, his gestures are a lot... Because he's, he's still trying to find his feet, he's a bit more... Um, his performance is a bit sharper because he's, he's just not sure how to play things. But that, to me, made it uh, a really interesting viewing experience. And again, I'm just reminded that I prefer Moffat's more straightforward stories than, than his convoluted arcs, to be perfectly honest. I think it's a solid story. What are your memories of uh, Beast Below? Uh, I recall being a little disappointed. I, th- I, thought it was, I thought it was a small episode. I, th- I, th- I thought the trailer for it with, with the creepy-looking... Uh, uh, like a clown's face almost uh, boded well but um, I didn't think that overall um, it was as good as it could have been but again I mean I haven't watched it since it was first screened so um, like a number of these stories which I, I watched again um, perhaps my um, 
my second impression would be better than the first but I mean I suppose that's to be expected because now we're sort of time has passed it's what three or four years now is it four or five years now I'm not quite sure about five years God in heaven I know Um, (laughs) I know so you know your your expectations are sort of different and your um, uh, and what you now know about the the the, the, uh, Smith era uh, would have would have evolved so um, you know like I said, uh, I'm sure. I'm sure. Looking at it again, it would be a different experience and one that I might enjoy it more. What's your number five, Rob? Well, now the, my list isn't in any particular order, but so we'll go with the first one on the mm-hmm. list. I'm going to go, and I can already hear the screams of outrage. I'm going to go with uh, Aliens of London. No, 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 no screams. Just Mark chuckling in the background. That's all right. The trailer at the end of Unquiet does look great. It builds it up magnificently. So I'm interested to hear your thoughts on it. I, I, re- I watched this maybe three months ago, and what struck me was the, the unsettling atmosphere that uh, Davies brought to the, to the story. That as the episode progresses, as the story unveils itself, it becomes progressively stranger, a much more strange viewing experience. I mean, look, The Farting Aliens is objectionable. It's the, you, you, you can't get away from that. Though, I mean, the explanation given makes a sort of sense. Their reaction to it, though, does add to the sort of unsettling atmosphere. There is a creepy atmosphere going on there. There's, there's something very strange going on in London at that time. And, you know, some of the locations shooting, you know, the shooting in the hospital where the doctor is running after the alien pig, the blue lighting, the dark, you know, the shadows and all that sort of thing. It does really add to the atmosphere. And there's a, there's obviously a conspiracy at the heart of it, which really, really does appeal to me. Um and this, the cliffhanger, the cliffhanger actually really works. I mean, you know, it's quite a smart one and the, the menacing delivery of the, the, the alien playing, I think the Prime Minister, uh, adds to it. And then, of course, everyone gets electrocuted. Mm. And if you're, a, if you're a child at home who's, you know, sort of become uh, sort of used to the show and seeing Eccleston sort of sail through things, uh, to see him <laughs> jittering <laughs> and falling to the ground would have been a really unsettling experience. Uh, having said all that, the second episode is complete crap and turns everything that's good in the first episode to rubbish. But I think that of all, you know, of the first, say, half of series one, I found that Aliens of London is closer in tone to the classic series, to the creepier stories in the classic series, than anything else hmm. in, 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 that, in that section of series one. Um, and it, it is the first, is it the first story that uh, Eccleston uh, recorded? Yes, right? it was. It was. The unsettling atmosphere might have been uh, Keith Bowick's direction. <laughs> <laughs> I just want to know what happened to the flaming couch. That's the other great mystery of that episode. <laughs> it was a drink I had on the cruise. <laughs> <laughs> but um, no, I, I would um, look, granted, the second episode is a grave disappointment, but I would, I would uh, say that. In terms of the the reputation that it has, it's actually worth going back and revisiting Aliens of London. I know we've got friends who swear off <laughs> doing that ever again. Hello, if you're listening. And and <laughs> if you're listening, and they are. But and that's fair enough. I mean, you know, some things aren't for some for, for some people. That's fair enough. But uh, the impression I got uh, watching it again was markedly different and, and a marked improvement. Uh, the overall impression. Then when I watched it the first time, which was with a little bit of open mouth horror, um, but uh, yeah, so Aliens of London, give it a go. A very brave choice. I'm a brave man. The second episode just puts me off. Look, we all laugh a bit at the space pig scene, but the Doctor's reaction is what makes it makes this make this makes this Doctor Who. Mm. You know, in another series, 
uh, you know the, the the human characters might have enjoyed blowing away this strange abomination mm. but the doctor is full of you know wrath at what's happened to this creature this poor manipulated creature mm. and that is a that is a reaction you would expect from doctor who mm. and uh it just shows i suppose in a sense the sort of you know RTD's understanding of the key elements of the series. An interesting choice. All right, Mark. So, what's your um, what's your next underrated episode? Number four. My number four, because I need to have things in order, is forty-two. We were so close. Oh, were we? <laughs> I was so close to to actually putting forty-two in the list. Go on. Sorry, I've interrupted you. So basically, uh, forty-two was the debut script. Uh, from Chris Chibnall, the man who went head-to-head with Pip and Jane Baker and lived to tell the tale. It's a claustrophobic thriller. It's tightly directed by Graham Harper, and I'm a big fan of of the TV show 24, so the counting clock and everything is basically a pastiche of, of 24. Really sort of resonated with me. And, and, you know, I noticed David Tennant was really good in this. He's not, he wasn't as smug as he was, what he was in Series 2. And in this episode, in this story, I actually got the impression he was actually taking the threat seriously he was out of his depth in in most of it and he's actually genuinely frightened uh what was going on especially when he's possessed by the i think it was taraji's son the, the son that uh that those crazy space people scooped up and were trying to use as fuel and when martha was trapped in the escape pod and gets shunted off you know to the to the to the sun i remember in frontier in space you know when Pooey's in his spacesuit it's like a leisurely sunday stroll where tenant in his spacesuit He's really putting, you know, it's like it's like Davison in the case of Andrazan. He's putting everything to try and save the companion. Like he's swinging, he's making, you know, he's really exerting himself to try and try and save her. I think the reason why this story gets written off quite a bit is that um, when it was broadcast, I think the film Sunshine by Danny Boyle was released about the same time, and it's very similar premise. I love Sunshine. I think it's a great film, and I think you know, this story is, is is great as well. I do think that Michelle Collins was miscast as the captain in the same way uh, Beryl Reed was miscast in Nershock. I could actually see Lindsay Duncan doing that role more convincingly than uh, Michelle Collins uh, did. But you know, when I was watching it the other night, I was on the edge of my seat. I was getting all worked up. Going, oh my god, you know, because I hadn't seen it since its original transmission. And I don't understand why it gets the kicking it does. And it's probably the best script that Eric Sayward never wrote. Mm. It's interesting that um, some of the better episodes in Tenet's run are those smaller stories. Mm. I, know the, I know the story, I know the series now, because it's got the budget and the ambition, goes for bigger bigger event stories and bigger themes and all that sort of thing. But I, I sometimes think that that approach can get, you know, run away yeah can run away from the control of the writer and the director etc yeah. etc they need to ratchet just, it back a bit don't they yeah sometimes they do um, they pull their ambition back just a tad because uh, better to fall short than <laughs> a little bit sometimes than, than, than to you know give in to excess let's have a story Stephen let's have an adventure <laughs> <laughs> I'm too far away from my desk to thump it <laughs> I could do it I could hear it from here <laughs> What about yours, uh, Rob, in, in non-numeric order? Uh, well, this story copped a hiding at the time because the tone that was taken was completely at variance with what had happened before. But I think that Night Terrors warrants a re-examination. Uh, I know that a lot of people commented that the series, you know, I think uh, River had been, or the baby had been born and been stolen and, and then there was sort of some sort of abrupt tone shift but I think that was because the story itself had been swapped out swapped out basically 
so look i can understand you know where you're coming from where they're coming from in terms of a, a sort of an arc approach to the that's the series but taken on its own merits um i think that night terrors is probably the most effective horror story uh, pure horror story that the series the new series has, has has approached listen is very 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 good but i think night terrors is almost or even just as good as that you have you know again you have a smaller location uh you have just a they've gone all out for the creep factor haven't they yeah it's 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 a closed in location there's it's it's very dark those dolls that were moving around i've a i've, I've a friend who um who's based in the uk who writes uh short horror fiction and he his stories occasionally come back to the theme of dolls and puppets and, and that sort of thing and you can understand why that sort of imagery is very very creepy because you've got these representations of you know humans that just sit there that they are dead but they are alive in a, in a sense mm. uh, coupled with that you've got you know a, a nice little sort of a father-son relationship and, the, and this son who the the younger people in the audience can identify with and uh, look we all know that Gaddis loves horror He's done uh, two documentary series about you know the, the history of horror in uh, in in in, uh, in movies. Yeah, it, very good as well, weren't they? They, they are the, the European mm. horror one uh, is quite good actually. Um, and I mean he's he's a bit of a, a dilettante in terms of his interests, in, but he's you know in, in genre. I mean he's he's written uh, sort of spy pastiches and uh, he's written horror not horror stuff as well, and you know League of Gentlemen and whatever. And it all sort of comes that horror those horror strands he picks up and weaves very effectively. Into a into a story that I think uh, deserves reevaluation and deserves a second look, mm. uh, because of all again of all the stories that uh, sort of touch on you know horror themes, Night Terrors comes very very close to being very very scary. What about Crimson Horror? Did that float your boat in terms of horror content? It does. It's it's much more pulpy. Yeah, I thought, um, and uh, and some of it is played for laughs in a sense. Mm. Uh, you know, the whole Matt Smith and uh, Paternoster Frankenstein. Yeah, yeah, and the Paternoster sex trio. Uh, <laughs> you know, sort of <laughs> deflates <laughs> that. Yeah. deflates that particular balloon. But I mean, I, the only other one you could sort of compare it to would be Listen, and there are Listen, there are genuine moments of creepiness. Absolutely, in, in, yeah. in Listen, but I think Night Terrors. Uh, approaches or matches uh, listen I think um, the problem with season 6 is that there's some great standalone episodes but that as I said that arc the arc is complete pants yeah. I mean let's kill Hitler is an abomination mm. it it is a disgrace I watched uh, 20 minutes of downfall a couple of nights ago and then my, I turned my mind back to let's kill Hitler and I was thinking you've got this wonderful milieu in you know uh, World War 2 era Berlin you've got Hitler and you stick him into a cupboard you know, and then you go off on a merry frolic with regards to River Song. I mean, I know that's what Moffat didn't want to, you know, have to handle or deal with, but uh, it's just a massive missed opportunity. And there, there, there are other stories in that within that arc which are equally rubbish. But it's just nice to take a breather from the crap and watch Night Terrors. All right, Mark. So, uh, what's your um, number three? Third, my num- number three. Number three. Number three. So I am listening to. I no, that's okay. I can hear, I can hear you snoring. <laughs> Just put your microphone on mute when you're snoring, please. It's you know it's quite off-putting. Oh, thank um, you very much. Yeah, thank you. Uh, gridlock. Oh, that's a bit of a jolt. No, I can't say snap. That's not one of mine. No. Okay. Excellent. I was waiting for the snap. Uh, series three took quite a while to hit its stride for me. I mean, let's be honest. <laughs> Daleks in Manhattan. What was what was <laughs> what was the one after that? I can't even remember it. 
Uh, is it evolution? Yeah, of the evolution of Daleks. Uh, Shakespeare Code, Smith and Jones. Um, didn't Lazarus Experiment really just washed over me? Did not make any impact at all. At all. And you know, I remember watching Gridlock at the time and going, "Well, it's probably the best of a bad bunch at the moment." But when I went back again and watched it, I was uh, pleasantly surprised. Like its namesake novel by Ben Elton, uh, which also touches upon traffic congestion an over-reliance on road transportation. Uh, it's probably the most overtly anti-drug story, probably since uh, Nightmare Then. The, uh, they've got these canteens and all selling moods and things like that. So, um, yeah, and of course, the best way to start off a new relationship with somebody is to take him to the same place as you uh, went with your old girlfriend. So he takes Martha to New, New, New York. New York. How many news were in that New York? I think it was six or seven, wasn't it? New York times six. Takes her there to the, the lower echelons where the real city is. Um, and Martha gets carjacked and, and split up from the doctor early on. So it's sort of, within that situation, it shakes him out of his funk about the whole, oh, going to get over Rose. It makes him realise, been a bit of a prick to Martha, to be honest. Again, like the doctor and Kay's on his own, he'll go to any length to ensure that uh, he rescues you know, his, com- his companion. And like Perry, he hardly knew her at all. And at the end of it, Martha basically sort of sits down and, and, and she's not going to take any more rubbish from him and waits for him to open up about the whole Gallifrey and the Time Lord situation in a way he never really did uh, with Rose. So that's a great scene, actually, and it's probably one of R2-D's more successful uh, character-driven episodes. And one thing I noticed with that was he was planting the, the, the seeds of that story arc in series three, the whole you are not alone, quite mm. subtly, not like later on where they're sort of sledgehammered across <laughs> your face. And I think we sometimes forget that RTD and Moffat are, are actually fans of the show because mm. to bring back the macro, which haven't been seen or remembered since the 60s, he could have made it easily a new monster, but he said, no, 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 we'll do the macro. And when I was watching it and when it was revealed, it was a macro. I had a big smile on my face. My wife had said, what are you smiling about? I said, don't worry, dear. It's, it's old Doctor Who. <laughs> I've bought a mood pill and I've just taken it. Just taken it. You know, it's happy. Uh, <laughs> as much as we protest quite a bit about them, you know, they are fans in the end. But, you know, you brought back the macro. You know, slightly changed around. But um, here's a question for you. Martha, underrated, unappreciated or uninspiring? Uh, well, I did watch some Martha-related episodes for this exercise. I... Inexperienced, as in the actress, I think. I think uh, maybe inexperienced in terms of TV work, perhaps. Mm. Um, she's uh, look. I mean, uh, some of it is coloured by the fact that they've gone down that relationship route again. They've attempted to replicate the Rose thing. Yeah. Um, and I don't. I honestly, I just don't like that. Uh, as a character, I think Martha is quite good. She's saddled with an absolute shrew of a mother. Which uh, oh, yeah. doesn't doesn't help because she ends up you know whenever they're interacting, she's sort of you know despairingly pleading with her mother to stop doing this or saying that, and it sort of detracts from the character a little bit. Um, I look, I, don't, I don't, look Freema Agumon, um, uh, I think fit the role that was asked of her, but I think she was just a little bit experienced for inexperienced for it, and it sometimes showed. It just sometimes showed in her delivery and uh, and her presence, but yeah, it was all right. She was alright. Was she more inexperienced, do you think, than Karen Gillan was? Like when you watch a performance of Karen Gillan when she was in in series five compared to Free Magiman. Mm. Like do you think they're both on a similar level in terms of acting prowess? I, I think it's possible that um, Karen has got a bit more talent. Uh, look, she's clearly parlayed 
her time on Doctor Who and the increased presence of Doctor Who in America mm. into some sort of film and TV career in the States. Uh, we're, but uh, so having said that, Freema has done the same uh, in the UK. I mean, she's, she's not <laughs> vanished into obscurity. She's got TV work and she's, I suppose she's relatively busy for an actress mm. uh, in, in, in the UK scene. Um, uh, I don't know. I, I, I think that I think Gillen is uh, just a slightly better actress and uh, it, it shows. She's a bit more assured uh, on the screen. Um, yeah, and uh, in the end, she's she's not as potentially needy as, as, as Martha was uh, in that particular series. It's probably down to the material, I think, Free Imagine was given. And as you said, it was the whole you know, getting over Rose sort of saddled with that mm. bollocks, to be perfectly honest, um, where, mm. you know, Karen Gillan... Her character was more feistier and, and, to be honest, better written. And I'm going to touch on the, on this in my next story. Mm. Um, the series' uh, obsession with having the Doctor have a partner, have a, you know, find a life partner. Uh, <laughs> someone falling in love with the Doctor, I think is what I'm trying to say, uh, by moving on to the story Partners in Crime. Oh. Where... Are you going to say snap? No. No, Excellent. I'm just going... <laughs> I'm surprised. <laughs> <laughs> Look, it's. <laughs> I said that I said this afternoon watching this, and it, the realization came to me that of all the new series uh, companions, maybe with Clara as the exception, I think Donna Noble is probably the best one. Yeah. There's there, there's no obsession or interest in making her the Doctor's love interest. In actual fact, at the end of the episode, it's it's explicit from you know from Tennant. And from uh, and from Catherine Tate mm. that he's not interested in it because he's been burnt before, and she she certainly doesn't want to you know mates with him as she as she says or as she misinterprets, uh, and for and for that um, I think that that Donna is 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 um, the better you know one of the better companions because then the 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 tone of the series shifts to uh, less on the relationship side. Or you know, you know, building up to a relationship and a budding romance, and more onto their interaction with each other as friends having adventures. Yeah, she's more of a classic companion, isn't she? It, it is, and in that sense, she's a bit like uh, Sarah Jane, in that she's you know she's feisty, she's independent, she's she made the role her own, and it's interesting that at the beginning, I mean, uh, watching Partners in Crime, it came to me that a lot of the younger, because Donna Noble as a character is probably in her mid to late thirties given the age of her grandfather and her mother she, well that's my impression anyway she's you know um the the younger companions so rose and martha they're at the beginning of their sort of adult life and they're in search of a fantasy you know the doctor is this fantasy this some this this person is going to come and whisk them away and donna on the other hand is an adult is a mature adult who's you know lived a bit of life has had disappointment in her life uh you know the the, the marriage that never went ahead her, her mother hounding her uh, her, her job prospects virtually nil and she's in, in trying to find the doctor as she's doing at the beginning of partners in crime she's actually just trying to find her, her place in life what what does it all mean where do i fit and while that's sort of you know played out uh during the just the story the other some of the other reasons to actually go and watch partners in crime it's actually quite amusing at the start i mean that you know the, the doctor and donna keep on missing each other mm. uh, in comedic ways um, and that's sort of in, in a sense that mirrors uh, Donna's missing of opportunities in her life um, now granted the, the Adipose uh, are cute 
but what the hell is, is going on? <laughs> yes. But um, I, I think it's the establishment... If you go back to Partners in Crime and watch it, it's the establishment of a new dynamic between the Doctor and his companion. It's the establishment of a new feisty uh, companion who, in hindsight, her story is quite tragic because we all know what happens to her uh, after the meta-crisis, you know, after the Doctor regenerates into himself. She appears on Big School with David Williams. <laughs> <laughs> but but Donna, having found her place, has to relinquish it. All those wonderful experiences have to go for her to live. And you know, in a sense, she probably you know, if she had if she had a choice that she could make, and the doctor would allow her, um, she wouldn't have opted to lose all those memories. She would have preferred to have burned, and 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 you know, then to have lost everything that made her life have some meaning. Mm. Um, so I would suggest you know go back to partners in crime, put aside um, <clears throat> some of the the uh, the, the, sto- the, you know, the the bulk of the story that's there, but have a have a think about you know Donna and the idea of a companion in the new series and uh, and, and what that all means. It's a Doctor Who version of moonlighting, isn't it? A little bit, isn't mm, it? I yeah. mean, where, where, once you've I mean, it's the whole idea of the companion and the Doctor hooking up uh, is distract for me anyway. Is distracting. Mm. It's not handled particularly well. And where's it going to lead? It's all—it's just going to end in tears time and time again, and that just gets repetitive. Mar- uh, you know, uh, Rose gets exiled to a dim- another dimension. Uh, Martha sort of, you know, as the Doctor says in Partners in, Partner in Crime, she loses half her life. Uh, it just ends in tears, and it just becomes wearying. But not for Rose, though, because she gets the human Doctor at the end. <sighs> That's just objectionable. <laughs> That's just objectionable. That's just basically she's got herself a sex slave. Really? Maybe she should hook up with the Pananoska gang. And and what plus one, three plus one, that's four. It's just Menage Cart? Quattro. So Partners in Crime is uh, my story. My underrated story. Give it another go. I certainly will. Number two. And your uh, your next story, Mark? End of the world. Snap! Oh, well done. <laughs> oh, was that your next one? Uh, it's on my list. Okay. But it actually was going to be my next one, yes. Oh, well so done. Okay, then we'll, let's hear the podcast. We'll catch you later. No, so, um, You've been listening to another episode of... No. <laughs> <laughs> you have had the misfortune of... No, let's get back on track. So I listened to a few podcasts uh, on my uh, sojourn away um, talking about the 10 years of New Who. And when I look back... At my own reactions to Rose, I remember I wasn't actually too sure about the new series and what it was trying to do and and the pitching of it because I knew it was intended for a family audience, but I felt it was slightly dumbing it down a bit, um, especially with the burping wheelie bin and the pizza, 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 you know, things. I watched Rose a couple of times and I think in my own mind, I couldn't believe it was actually back on the air. Mm. It just took a while for it to sort of sink in a bit, and I, I still wasn't too sure on it. And then when I saw End of the World, I said, now I get it. And I think the original plan was for this episode to follow uh, straight after Rose. I think it was basically run in the TARDIS and carry on with this, and they, and they decided not to. And I think actually it was a shame they didn't do that because get the companion off the earth start traveling especially in a time machine and go forwards and back and they went straight to the year five billion what better way to sell the show and in terms of a concept it reminds me of you know the hartnell era story um and this time though it can be matched with the appropriate uh, visuals and production values start learning a bit more 
about the time war and, and that scene where Jade is talking to him about being last of his species and, that, and just that look he gives. Mm. I mean, talk about underrated. Eccleston is underrated. Although I've noticed today that he's put another, he sunk the boot in again about why I left again. Did you read that? Where was that? I think it was on um, the Doctor Who news page. I think there was an interview on uh, on the radio. Yeah, he's, he's come out and said there was uh, a, a pyramid or somebody, three people at the top who he didn't get on with. So um, that's why <laughs> it's all coming out now 10 years later. Just He'll be back for the 60th. He'll mellow. He just played that scene beautifully. But then in his... <laughs> It's sort of I forgive him a bit for the whole dad dancing to Tainted Love earlier in the episode. <laughs> to be honest, oh, look, I'll be honest with you. Some of the directions a bit off. Some of the shots linger a little bit too long. When the aliens are all coming through and, and being introduced, Murray Gold just he puts in like Chelly Tubby's music. It's all twinkly and it just it sets the wrong tone. To be honest, was the Doctor uh, callous to let Cassandra die? No, probably not. He's a damaged man now, isn't he? He's probably less callous about it than uh, McCoy was in Remembrance of the Daleks making talking a Dalek to blow up. Though the funny thing about that is that given the events at the end of Day of the Doctor, Eccleston is, you know, sad for no good reason whatsoever. Yes. The, 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 the end of the day, the Doctor invalidates his, his self-loathing <laughs> and <laughs> completely. And I was also thinking about this because without any internet, you start thinking about things. <laughs> Series 6... With the whole Tessellector and, and the Doctor getting shot and regenerating on a beach. He wouldn't. He hasn't got any left. No, he doesn't, does he? So... <laughs> calm down, Mark, oh, calm down. Hold on, where's no my desk? desk? thumping. There you go. It doesn't, <laughs> it doesn't make any sense. But anyway... End of the world. End, end of the, the world. world. Focus, focus. Oh, focus, sorry. I know the whole lack of internet really screwed my brain. End of the world's the episode I sort of happen to catch a lot on television. like Because the ABC are repeating series, series one... Uh, going right through at the moment and on sci-fi channel they when I'm flicking around that's the episode it seems to be on gets repeated quite a bit but uh, great episode this for me was when I knew Doctor Who was back it was a shame that the space station had no security kitchen like they did in the Ark a missed opportunity there but great (laughs) Uh, well I, I don't have too much to add to that other than to say it it feels like the series starts with this particular story not that Rose is a misstep, Rose is an introduction, mm. but in terms of bringing the audience to the realisation that this is a science fiction show, you, you do need to show the, show the future, basically, don't you? Mm. Um, so in, in that sense, it was brave to go with that instead of uh, The Unquiet Dead, which is a safe a safer bet. Uh, and and the, I mean, um, obviously they lost a, you know, a little bit in the ratings, but that was always going to happen. So, uh, I, I I chose End of the World for a couple of things. Uh, RTD um, is is good with the social satire. I find he likes to um, poke fun at society's or modern society's obsessions. Now, Cassandra is clearly deranged about you know the level of plastic surgery that has clearly gone on yeah. and it's quite subversive in its attack on the uh, the cult of beauty and youth uh, in society today I mean as I get progressively older and, and into deeper into middle age I realize that even though I still think that I'm you know 20 I mean I have changed clearly but my, my sort of mindset is I oh, look I'm 20 I'm, I'm as fit as a 20 year old which I'm clearly not there are everyone who around me who looks at me is seeing a man whose hairline is gradually receding, <laughs> who's who, who's who's uh, who's the grey in his hair on his head has uh, has spread into his beard, 
who can no longer pick up his kids because his back is shot. And does um, a Doctor Who podcast. And does then does a Doctor Who podcast. You know, I could be with my wife now, but I'm talking to a microphone to a bloke who's on the other side of the city. But it, it does sort of poke fun at that sort of the cult of beauty, the cult of celebrity that we have in society today. The other thing as well, um, and it does this at the end of the story, but it, it hits you over the head like a saucepan during the story, is the idea of our personal mortality. And that's shown through the destruction of the earth. Um, the final destruction of the earth. We currently, you know, everyone who's alive today will not be alive in five billion years. The idea that um, the earth will no longer exist in X amount of years is one that you can't grapple with. It's just too big a concept, you know, because it, you, know, you just have to go outside and stand on the damn thing and it's there. But the idea that the earth is going to be, you know, the sun's going to slowly expand and gobble the inner planets up and the earth will be gone. All of human civilizations will be gone. Everything that we have strived for will be gone. Uh, is touched on in, in, in this particular aspect of the story. And the, and the idea that the Earth will die mirrors the fact that we will all die at some point. And that's sort of linked in with at the end where the Doctor says, I'm the last of my species, effectively, doesn't he? Yes. You know, my, my planet burned, my planet died. Um, and for all the, the dancing to tainted love and all the strange things and all the dad dancing that the Doctor does, th- this, I think, for me anyway, is the core of the story. Um, and I think it's a brave brave thing for, for for Davies and the production team to have gone with so and they early sort of, on so early on and they sort of they sort of slip it in amongst you know the flash visuals and all that sort of thing and, right. and granted you know uh, as I wrote down here uh, Eccleston does his Jedi mind trick by stepping through the fans that's that's sort of one <laughs> minus thing there but it's these you know I don't love the new series as much as I love the classic series but when it touches on themes like this this is where the new series outshines the classic series for me. I dad danced to uh, Tainted Love Still. I have danced twice. Once at my wedding, mm. where I just blew blew the stage away, and then I was absolutely blind one morning at three at a bar in the city, and I was actually dancing. And that's and it was so bad that I was actually drinking beer, and that's that's the only reason I would be dancing. It was just terrible. Really? So I don't dance. I don't dance. So you've you snapped me on that one. Did you want to talk about your last one? You mentioned this derisively earlier on uh, when you listed some stories. I'm gonna go with the Lazarus experiment. Mark, are you there? Someone call it. No, no. <laughs> Just moving my jaw back into position. No, go for it. Go for it. Look, the the Lazarus experiment isn't a great story, but we are talking about you know stories that sort of don't shine as, as and sparkle as much as any other uh, the better stories. But and yes, towards the end it begins to fall apart and it becomes a, you know sort of a runaround shouty fest. Now this is a story that Mark Gaddis uh, stars in, but actually surprisingly doesn't write. Yes. Um, so that's that's interesting in and of itself. Gaddis is one of the very few people to have written and appeared uh, in the series in an actual acting, speaking role. Um, but in terms of this, some of the earlier stuff that's going on, there's a real undercurrent of sexuality going on um, that Lazarus is basically an old lecher, that he's got his eyes on... Uh, on um, Martha's, uh, Martha's, Martha's sister, mm-hmm. Letitia. Mm-hmm. And that's that's a brave thing for the series to do. 
that uh, you know a person in a position of I mean for effectively a, a children's show or something that's pitched towards the younger thing some of the thing that's going on here will probably you know go over the heads of kids but you can see that um, there's there's an element of sexuality going on there and his sort of interest in Letitia, his abandonment of, I think, his wife because she's no longer beautiful. The fact that the two people working on the machinery in the background as the, uh, as the, um, the, the, the rejuvenation machine are two young, buxom-looking women mm. g- g- give the hint that, uh, that Lazarus uh, is indeed rising in more than one sense. <laughs> and Hugh Hefner. <laughs> <laughs> and the other thing is, um, and again, it's, it's one of those things that the idea that ageing is a bad thing, that getting older is something that you should, you know, avoid. <laughs> strive to, re- to avoid or repudiate. Mm. And it seems that uh, there's a really good, uh, a couple of effective speeches that Gaddis gives as Lazarus where he... Um, is terrified of death that he he hid you know with these other people during the blitz in this cathedral and he wanted to as a result of that experience you know hold back death as long as he could um and uh and then there's a speech at the end that tenant gives about you know you think that living forever or for a very long time is a great thing i'm here to tell you that it's not and that lazarus basically repudiates the doctor and says no i you know that's a chance that i'm willing to take um we're all getting older and, and, and all that sort of thing and I think that uh, even though there's stuff, the rest of the stuff going on in the story, Martha's mother is, is a horror and uh, it, it, it appears to have been a story uh, filmed on three sets. Um, there's, there's just that element of ageing that I, I, I picked up on that I enjoyed. I really enjoyed Gaddis's, um performance. It is a bit arch, I grant you, Especially when he's rejuvenated, he's sort of he's sort of swinging for the for the fence in in a couple of spots. But you know, aside from that, when he's sort of more reflective, uh, he does it very well. And I I think that uh, you know Gaddis comes in for some stick for his his scripts, and people say he's not a you know well, some people say anyway that he's not a real actor, whatever that means. But I think here that um, he gives a couple of really good reflective scenes that are worth revisiting you know i i think it's a story that you could sort of just drive by and glance at and not have to come back to again mm. but it was quickly it was easily dismissed um in that particular se- uh, series but given what we sort of were given at the very end uh i yeah i think it's something that uh it, it's it's well worth revisiting in that particular series look if you want to compare arch performances uh look no further than eric roberts in the tv movie Yes. yes, they they both dressed for the occasion. So, they did. <laughs> <laughs> yes, actually, it's interesting that Eric Roberts's film career has uh, gotten better. I mean, he's in the Batman movies for, for once. So. But he's in a new so, film called Human Centipede Three. Oh, have you heard? Of, have you heard about those films? Uh, I have. Yeah, oh, got it. Yes. Well, look, he's like the Michael Caine of his generation without the Academy Awards. There's nothing that he won't appear in. She was 17 years old. That's my Michael Caine impression. That's as, that's as good as your Tom Baker impression. Ah, Master Bruce. <laughs> <laughs> All right, Mark. So, what is your uh, last underrated episode? Uh, my number one is the Unquiet Dead, mm. where Doctor Who does the Walking Dead and Mark Gaddis does a Talons of Wing Chiang, and it's easily, I think, his best script until Crimson Horror. Completely forgot about Night Terrors. Actually, that's how much it made an impact on me. Mm. I should go back and watch it. Actually, and it's probably the best Christmas special that they never did as well. Really, because set on Christmas Eve. I don't know, did we actually cover this in our Christmas podcast? I can't even remember. It was only three months ago. Yeah. Oh, we didn't, yeah, actually. Right. No, that's interesting. I think uh, somebody wrote in and told us we should have covered it. But anyway. Simon Callow is excellent as Dickens. And the Doctor uh, gushing over his 
his work is is probably how Gaddis sees overexcited Doctor Who fans, uh, which let's be honest, he's one of them anyway, so he's probably gushing like we all do when we meet the stars of the show. It sets up the trope of the RTD era that every third story would be a historical, mm. whether it's pseudo or not. You know, the Gulf is the second alien that Doctor has come across that's been affected by the Time War, and you know some of the decisions he makes early on actually have ramifications where Sneed gets killed. It's probably the most classic era story in that series. And when I watch it again, series one, five and eight, probably my favourite series of, the, of New Who. I should go back and watch series one again. I, I did watch Father's Day uh, a while ago and was unimpressed. Um, oh, really? Yeah, I don't know. It's just the, the look. The look of the show, I think it's a little bit too glossy. You know, we used to complain that the mismatch of film and video in the classic series was very jarring. I just sometimes think that the, the new series needs to be grunged up a little bit. Um, I think it, there's too much of a surface gleam to it that distracts. That probably just says that I'm shallow and pathetic, but um, I don't know. I just, sometimes I think it's a, they, they, the gloss is, uh, d- distracts from, from what's, what's going on around it. But, and I found that with, um, with Father's Day, everything's a bit too shiny for me. It's interesting um, when you watch I think I mentioned this before where you watch the the David Tennant era and the production values seem to be a li- little bit less than the Matt Smith era like if you compare a market scene in, in the in the Beast Below compared to a similar scene in Gridlock it's yeah it's only and that's only like two or three years after the fact uh, it, it's, it's gone the production values have just excelled but um, another thing about the Unquiet Dead the first time we see an actual person from history since uh, Time Lash and without Paul Darrow which I'm actually watching Blake 7 again at the moment. Ooh, how's that go? Finish episode 1, and I'm halfway through episode 2. 50, 50 to go. You're flying, mate. You're absolutely flying. Feel like a liberator. I'd actually, I just want to uh, call back to Partners in Crime. Bernard Cribbins is fantastic. That, la- is. that last scene, even though the special effects shot is terrible, uh, mm-hmm. his reaction to seeing uh, uh, Donna in the TARDIS mm-hmm. waving madly at him is just really lovely. And he's a real asset to that series, uh, particular series, isn't he? He was a real asset to the end of time. You know, he made it... Mm. I won't say he made it bearable, but <laughs> his performance um, stood out. And at the end, you know, when Donna's getting married mm. and, and he turns around to see David Tennant for the last time and he's got... T- and he, he gives that little... You know, his, his lip starts trembling and that was actually really affecting, yes. you know. And same with Elizabeth Sladen's um, performance... In, in those last scenes as well. Well, the others, I couldn't give a crap about personally. <laughs> it, it, it's funny. Whenever I see an older actor emotional, I get emotional. Whenever I see a younger actor uh, get emotional, uh, it just leaves me cold. I don't know what that says about me. Because, like, you see Martha and Mickey hugging each other. I just couldn't give a crap about, you know, where you see Bernard Cribbins and, and Liz Sladen giving small looks and, you know, oh, yeah. That's not unusual for me. I've, I've you know, because we're in the middle of the 100th anniversary of World War One, and the Gallipoli landings are around the corner for Australia and New Zealand, mm. uh, I, I recall watching old soldiers, uh, you know, recounting their, their, their time in war in the 90s, and these were men in their 80s and 90s and, you know, and they were in tears, and you know, I was in tears watching it. So it's not something unusual for me to see to have that reaction for an older actor. I mean, uh, Cribbins is just marvelous all the way through, and he gives it his all, and he gives he lends uh, experience and weight to those those episodes that he uh, that he appears in. But uh, Unquiet Dead thoroughly enjoyed rewatching it. In fact, I thoroughly enjoyed rewatching 
all of those uh, stories and I suppose when this show does come to a if, it, if they do postpone the show for a few months or a year potentially later on I wouldn't mind because I'll go back like I did with the classic series I'll go back and rewatch them and probably reevaluate a fair chunk of them mm. And is it uh, worthwhile, Marco, just asking our listeners, if you've got uh, any stories that you particularly think are underrated and are worthy of a re-evaluation, uh, you, know, you can contact us via Twitter or email or on our Facebook page and just give us one or two stories that you think are underrated and why they, they might be underrated and uh, we'll read a few of those out uh, in our next couple of episodes. And if you don't agree with us, tell us why. Please God, because... I was grasping at the end with Lazarus Experiment. <laughs> it showed. Um, <laughs> <laughs> have you got any more there, Rob? Uh, well, I was, as I said, I was going to choose uh, 42, mm. but then I went with the Lazarus, Lazarus Experiment uh, instead. Um, I had notes. I actually took notes for all this. What have I got here? Yeah, I've got it's notes. Lazarus, well. Partners in Crime, uh, the mime scene. What the hell is that? Oh, yeah, that was in Partners in Crime. Uh, Last of the Time Lords? Uh, no, not really. Uh, no, not Terrors. Yeah, no, I had a couple of others, but I don't have them on the bit of paper that I've got here. But yeah. uh, uh, it's definitely worthwhile having a look back if you've got the time on some of these stories. I mean, we can all go back and look at the blinks and the human nature and the listens and, uh, and stuff like that. Uh, but, um, you know, give some love to some of these stories that have been, too, I think, too easily dismissed. Is it, uh, is it interesting that we haven't picked up on too many Smith or any Capaldi's? Or is it just too recent? I think Capaldi's too recent, as we've discussed many times before. I think for the most part we enjoyed Series 8. Mm. Very solid run of episodes from a better, Episode 3 onwards, particularly. I would, if, if there is, I mean, uh, In the Forest of the Night is rubbish, so we could just dismiss that. I'm, I'm a bit more kinder towards it. Are you? I like it when big concepts and new ideas are tried out. Oh, that's true. That's fair enough. I'm happy to give it a little bit of leeway. In. I would um, I would give... I would say... All right, well, in that instance then, I would say that of the stories in Series 8, perhaps Robin of Sherwood is the one that is underrated more than any other. Yeah. Uh, I think it's actually quite quite funny uh, and amusing and, and, and not as worthy of people's indifference as has been suggested by you know the polls and, and, and commentary and all that sort of thing what would be interesting is if you know people went back and had a, a re-evaluation of all of Geddes's stories because um, he does come into in for some stick and I think unfairly so in a number of instances I think Cold War is very good I think Crimson Terror is very good I think Robin of Sherwood is very good um, Unquiet Dead as you mentioned before is quite good as well it's just that um Perhaps he's a bit too traditional in some instances for uh, a number of the more vocal fans or fans who are prepared to comment on the forums, etc., etc. That's why I don't go on forums. But uh, if I look at Matt Smith, potentially I think Girl Who Waited is underrated. God Complex, underrated. Yeah, I could have easily, just as easily have swapped out God Complex, uh, sorry, Night Terrors for God Complex. Uh, I, th- I think that uh, they're similar in tone, that, you know, again, the limited location, the spooky atmosphere and... And, and what does the doctor actually see in that room? But um, uh, well, we know it's John Hurt. Is it? I don't know. Oh, I, I thought it was Terminator Genesis. <laughs> it might be. It might be. Might be that movie he did with Ryan Gosling, the director. Well, the one he did with Daisy. <laughs> <laughs> right, Rob. It's time to uh, dust off your Sharers Jack gimp costume 
It's a case of third time lucky for our irregular segment, Drag from the Archives. And the idea with Drag from the Archives is to, is to cast a light on fandom uh, of years gone by. Have a bit of fun. Have a bit of fun. Look at their attitudes. It's our own time-space visualiser in effect, without the added bonus of the Beatles performing for us. Except on the Region 4 copy, which was edited out. Now, the first uh, cab off the rank was actually included as part of a wrapper, uh, which enclosed within Data Extract magazine, which is the uh, Australian Doctor Who fan club's magazine. The fans listening have to understand that in times gone by, fanzines were printed on actual paper. And sent in the mail. And sent in the mail. And the wrapper was usually the address wrapper. That's correct. Yeah, so this is actually on the inside, uh, which uh, cheerily says, JNT kills Doctor Who. JNT must go. Stop press. The end of Doctor Who. A rebirth in 1986. If Colin Baker refuses to cooperate, impossible as it may seem, Colin Baker could easily be replaced. All that is needed for a new start is a 20-second opening scene in the TARDIS with someone his size dressed as Colin Baker back to the camera and face unseen like Mordrin's first appearance. This would appear to be Colin Baker, who can then, with special effects used, fall to the TARDIS floor, face still unseen, groan, and promptly regenerate. It would help if Perry could be there to provide a link, but that is not essential. A totally new, decent Doctor could then stand up and explain that his previous regeneration had been unstable and that he had spontaneously changed after tumultuous buffeting. After choosing a sensible costume, the series could be back to normal in two minutes. Uh, a premonition of time in the Rani there, I think. I think so. This is this is what's known in psychological circles as fan projection, people. That, uh... Or fan wank. <laughs> <laughs> that, uh, that, that the writer of this so loathed uh so loathed what was going on with doctor who at that time that um this was the perfect way to get the series back on track it uh, probably not possible for the series to get back on track at this point but um it's an interesting insight into what was going through the minds of fans in australia 85 early 86 would that be right mate i think this is late 86 because it seems yeah this is when colin baker was um given his marching orders so that regeneration in time of the rani actually would have been better if they didn't do it at all in retrospect it would have been better just to have the tardis arriving the door opening mel coming out say come on doctor and now he comes that would have been more startling but then you'd still would have got the time of the rani so (laughs) yeah i know i'm just trying to make you know, I'm trying to make it somewhat better. I don't know. I'd be interested to hear what our listeners uh, have to say about that regeneration and how they would have handled it. How would you have handled the fact that uh, there were no scripts in the book, in the bank, sorry, and, you know, Colin Baker understandably refused to come back for four more episodes. Uh, how would you have handled it? You can email us, tweet us, or jump onto our Facebook account. Mm. What have you got there, Rob? So, Mark, this um, excerpt is from uh, DWB43. It's headed, Will Sylvester McCoy be another puppet on Nathan Turner's string? I don't think that's a euphemism, but we'll move on from that. (laughs) And it reads, The casting of Sylvester McCoy as the seventh Doctor certainly came as no surprise to many of the people who helped prop up the BBC bar. Days before the all-important final decision was cast, Sylvester was seen with producer John Nathan Turner chatting and laughing over a few pints. Now, one can read anything into the seemingly minor incident, of course, but one can almost imagine it as McCoy's inauguration, having passed Nathan Turner's stringent loyalty vetting for budding doctors. Time will tell whether indeed McCoy will bow to every command demanded by the great bearded one, 
will break free of the production team's grip and give us, once again, a truly honest and natural interpretation. I think McCoy had to go through a few hoops to get the role, like they had to rig the audition. <laughs> it was... It was a rigged hoop, was it? <laughs> it was a rigged audition. He said that on the Tom the Riley DVD. Uh, just remind me, I mean, Colin Baker was picked out because he was uh, a funny vivant at a wedding. <laughs> um, um, oh, what was McCoy's... Uh, how did John Nathan turn a latch onto McCoy? I think he saw him in the Pied Piper. And I think... Oh, Jesus um, Christ. <laughs> he wasn't playing the rat. I think he was in the, in, the, in the title role. And I think Clive Doig, who used to be a producer on... Vision on, bang up Nathan Turner and said, I think I've got the ideal doctor for you. And then Sylvester McCoy's agent rang Nathan Turner and said, I think I've got the ideal doctor for you. And Jane mm. T put two and two together and uh, obviously went to the pub with uh, McCoy after it. There's uh, two things out of that. There's um, an interesting photo of McCoy from the Secret Policeman's Ball, which we, we may or may not put up on the web, <laughs> on our, on our uh, blog. <laughs> That's just... You're that, wrong. That, that is just wrong. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Um, yes. But the other thing is, uh, the the feature writer for uh, DWB, I, I'm, I'm assuming Gary Lee wrote most of this. He's got a wonderful acidic <laughs> turn of phrase, you know, propping up the bar and over a few pints and like the great, great bearded, bearded one. one. It's just, uh, it's in a way, it's comedy gold. It, it's just you can't you can't beat it, really. No, you can't beat it. As look, I've said this numerous times before. Doctor Who was in a really interesting place back in 85, 86, 87. It was just, <laughs> it's, it's like it's like fandom is a fox with its foot in a trap, and the only way for <laughs> fandom to escape is to gnaw its foot off. So. <laughs> Fandom is basically gnawing at itself to get away from J&T and it just can't. And we keep on going back to it, don't we? We do, we do. All right, uh, what one have you got, Mark? We're going to switch back to Australia now, uh, Victoria in particular. The Sonic Screwdriver magazine, uh, issue 42, uh, has a sad headline, Troughton dies at a US convention. As most of you would now know, Patrick Troughton, an actor loved and admired by millions across the world, has died. He passed away on March the 30th, 1997, in hospital whilst in the US at the age of 67. Only five days after his birthday, Patrick was attending a Doctor Who convention in Columbus uh, with other stars from the series when he was taken ill. Sometime later, he suffered a heart attack in the hospital. Uh, Patrick Troughton shall always be remembered by film and television enthusiasts for the many major and minor roles he enriched our lives with. His contribution to Doctor Who shall always live on in the minds of young and old fans alike. Who have come to appreciate his portrayal of the second doctor our condolences go out to his friends and family i remember uh hearing that news uh, a friend of mine uh, cut out a clipping from the uh, sun paper and brought it to school he had a picture of him uh of trouton from fury from the deep with his little uh woolen cap on i must have read about it in dwm at that time uh, it's interesting that the story, not to dwell on someone's passing, but the story actually gets the facts of his death incorrect, doesn't it? It does. He didn't die. He didn't have a heart attack in the hospital. He had a heart attack in his room. That's correct. And was apparently found dead uh, sometime later. So, uh, but you know, in in the pre-internet age, <laughs> it's it's not unusual to get certain. You know, th- things are clarified later, of course. But yeah. uh, uh, that's actually uh, twenty-eight years ago. So the anniversary of it um, was only a few well a few weeks since we've. Uh, Go at time of recording. So look, I don't want to dwell on this, uh, but I remember Patrick Troughton's death was quite understated compared to um, when it was announced with uh, John Pertwee's passing. 
you know, which had, which had extensive media coverage. Mm. I think in the mid '90s we'd moved into that um, stage of media cycles, wasn't it? Yeah, we did. Mm. Whereas the 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 '80s was sort of the the tail end of the old uh, the old way of doing things. I mean, certainly in Australia, I don't recollect any any TV mention of it yeah. uh, or radio. I know when I, I heard about Pertwee's death, uh, it was covered during the day on radio uh and i think on some of the, the the commercial networks would have even mentioned it as well and you know i jumped onto the internet and picked it up that way and that was a that was a sad day i suppose in, in it was sense. some yeah. of those commercial uh station announcements are actually on youtube oh really yeah they've got a couple of channel nine ones and uh, a couple of others oh, okay. but I do, I do remember they were, they were showing clips from um day of the daleks and and wurzel garbage and yeah, okay. things like, so yeah. if you're morbid go and have a look at those absolutely absolutely what's uh what have you found there, Rob? So the next story comes from uh, Sonic Screwdriver, the uh, the fanzine of the Doctor Who Club of Victoria. Victoria, the best state in Australia. By far. <laughs> uh, now, this one's headed lining up for season 24, Rani, Sill and Cyberman return, exclamation mark. Uh, and it reads, Following in the footsteps of the epic trial of a Time Lord is another season of 14 episodes made up of three stories in this episodic order, 446. The first story, which introduces Sylvester McCoy, his actual introduction into the series is still a well-kept secret, is written by Pip and Jane Baker, and featuring the return of Kato Mara's superbly played villainess, the Rani. This may be due to the fact that the Rani was originally going to feature in the last six episodes of the trial, but due to overseas work commitments, the scripts had to be abandoned in favour of the Vervoid story. The tentative production title is Revenge of the Rani, and will be directed by Fiona Cumming, who has a reputation for producing Fine Who. Her directing credits for the series include Castrovalva, Snake Dance, Enlightenment, and most recently, Planet of Fire. The following four-part adventure features the return of Nabil Shaban as Sil from Vengeance on Varos and Segment 2 of The Trial of a Time Lord. In this, the third and concluding part of the Sil trilogy, uh, the story is once more written by Philip Martin and directed by Ron Jones, who directed the last Sil adventure. The third and concluding story of the 23rd season looks set to be another Cyberman saga, this time in six episodes. Returning to the English shores from America, Jerry Davis, co-creator of the Cybermen, along with whiz ex-Doctor Who script editor come writer Christopher H. Bidmead, have crafted a tale depicting the birth of the cyber race. It will be interesting to see which cyber costume is used. Jerry Davis has not been involved in the series since 1975 when he wrote the only Tom Baker meets the Cybermen story, Revenge of the Cybermen. According to one of my sources who has seen the script, the story looks set to be a very interesting one. Just why can't be revealed yet? Because it doesn't exist. (laughs) (laughs) Struggling manfully here. Uh, Just why can't be revealed yet, but it does seem to be a fascinating story centred on both medical and computer science. Although the script is written, it is not finalised as the last story of season 24. Who knows? we may get to see Sylvester stuff a Cybermit down his trousers. Um, as that went on, it got increasingly... Uh, it, it, it left truth and began to orbit fantasy. Um, <laughs> <laughs> that's gold. That's, uh, that's what happens. That's Chinese whispers in action there, people. That is direct from the BBC bar. <laughs> <laughs> at about 11 o'clock at night after a few more than a few pints have been imbibed. Would you like to see that season as opposed to the one we got for season 24? <sighs> I suppose Bidmead would have made <laughs> would have made a decent contribution. Yeah, it, it certainly strikes you as being more of the same. I mean, you know, I've I've lamb lambasted uh, lambasted twenty four season twenty four. So, you know, 
if even if this is the 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 rantings of a madman, it makes it makes it much better than season twenty four. I think. I wonder if that issue was actually the April issue, because <laughs> April one, because that just has no relationship to reality, does it? No, but anyway, um, worse and worse. On the same page, actually, it has a, a title called Rejuvenation. Uh, it says when season 24 commences on British screen sometime in September the BBC hierarchy will be avidly watching an improvement in the ratings with season 23's disastrous ratings of 5 million the lowest since season 17 I don't agree Um, it is generally felt by the powers that be that Doctor Who is a tired old program which has had its day they said the same thing with the resignation of Patrick Trout in 1969 if McCoy and the production team fail to deliver in the eyes of the Beeb the show's future may yet be in jeopardy Sylvester cannot be sacked because he is a member of Actors Equity which protects employers cancelling a fixed term contract in this case of three years. Colin Baker, who was under the same contract agreement, finished his three-year term just as the last episode of Trial was broadcast and whence his contract was not renewed. While fandom generally think that Grade sacked the wrong person, the series has been granted another chance and with the last season restoring some of the magic of Who, things can only improve. I'm reminded of that song, uh, Things Can Only Get Better. Thank you, Howard Jones. Hmm. Uh, I think the next one, Rob, will be right up your Omni Rumour alley. Yes, this one is labelled Hartnell's Swan Song Found. And uh, there's a picture there of uh, the 10th Planet Cybermen. It uh, must have sent a, an ecstatic tingle down the, f- the, the spines of fandom throughout Victoria, all 220 of them, uh, when they <laughs> saw this one. It starts and very quickly ends... Along with episode two of Evil of the Daleks, another episode which has almost certainly been found is the Tenth Planet, episode four. This will complete the story, as the other three episodes are already held by the BBC, and makes way for the likelihood of its sale with the Hartnell package, as the story which concludes the Hartnell era. It is still to be returned to the BBC as delicate negotiations occur between the owner and the BBC, but all bodes well for the completion of the first Cyberman story. That's that. Uh, that's back to, uh, sort of pivoted off that Roger K. Barrett story, isn't it? Roger K. Barrett saga started in '87 when he was sending emails. Uh, sorry, emails. He was sending letters to Gary mm. Lee and uh, saying, "I've got Tenth uh, Planet Four. I want to sell it. Or I want to swap it with an episode of Armchair Theatre." And I think even Mark Gaddis got involved in it. And this thing just kept going and going and going on in the background until '93 uh, when that blank tape was handed over with yes. uh, with. Nothing on it. Well, nothing Hence on it. the word blank tape. Well, that's when they, they, they filmed those links with um, you know, the fellow who played Ben Jackson. Michael Craze. That's right, yeah, because they strongly believed that uh, they'd actually found episode four. And did they incorrectly release that version of it here in Australia? What, with, with the links? With the links. Oh, yes, in, sure. instead, of the, instead of the reconstruction. I'm sure somebody would... Uh, Right on, on VHS. It was on VHS. Yes, I I, th- I think I might be right or might be Actually, wrong. Actually, remind me, how was Tenth Planet released on VHS? It was released in a tin, a Cyberman tin, uh, coupled oh. with Attack of the Cybermen. Jeez. It was in the UK, but over here they were released separately. What do they do with Episode Four? They put a reconstruction, a tele snap reconstruction. Oh, okay. Had they had they found those eight millimeter clips? I think they had, but I think the Australian one, the the master, got mucked up initially. 
Mm-hmm. So I'm sure our merchandising uh, expert, Richard Nolan, will get in contact with us and correct us. Please. I, I need to be corrected, Richard, please. Uh, this is from Sonic Screwdriver issue 44. It says, who's still proving popular worldwide? The BBC annual report, which looks closely at all BBC production, reports that Doctor Who has currently 170 markets worldwide, including 74% of US homes which would be capable of tuning into the Time Lord's antics. The report also accounts for a staggering 8,000 letters of protest at the program's 85 cancellation, making up for Who's loss of sales in France last year when the network failed to take up the option. A network in Spain has reportedly bought the rights to screen the show along with other TV programs, I was going to say Eurovision, at a, at a European television fair so even with those uh, strong sales uh, overseas they still canned it two years later just goes to prove mark that you can massage numbers any which way you want the bit about including 74 percent of u.s homes which would be capable of tuning into the time lord's antics because they own a tv <laughs> anyone with a tv could have done that whether they had the inclination to do so is uh Something not touched upon by those numbers. No, they're too busy watching Who's the Boss, I imagine. Uh, the last one, Rob. I just have to gird my loins for this one, Mark. Uh, <laughs> this one uh, is uh, written by Ian Levine, and it's titled Dallas Who. Ian writes, I just had the most wonderful thought. Picture this scenario. Tom Baker is lying at the bottom of the Faros project. He opens his eyes and looks at his shocked and stunned companions. This is the end, but the moment has been prepared for. Suddenly, he bolts upright. My goodness, Tegan, he says. And just... F- Noting to everyone, I've abandoned my pathetic attempt at a Tom Baker impersonation. Do you want me to step in? Uh, no. I'll carry on. <laughs> he goes, He goes. you wouldn't believe what a ridiculous nightmare I've just had. I dreamed the BBC were idiotic enough to allow a producer to continue on my show for eight years, replacing me firstly with a characterless and juvenile wimp, but then things get even worse with this ham dressed in a patchwork quilt looking like Coco the Clown. And the silliest thing is that... For the end of every episode, someone in the gallery kept screaming at the immortal words, <laughs> end of episode acting from Colin, please. And this crazed cameraman kept zooming in on a facial close-up of this rather unsavory character week after week after week. Worse than if the show had been stuck in Megloss's chronic hysterectomy. And would you believe the same four square directors kept getting employed story after story, while great talented Doctor Who directors of the past were just left out in the cold? And even worse, still, 14 weeks were wasted building up the longest story ever, only to have the ending clash with the entire story flow with a new girl companion straight out of a pantomime, arriving from the Doctor's future and leaving with him in the present. Aren't you glad this is all just an impossible nightmare and Doctor Who can now go back to being the brilliant and drama-filled program it used to be? Fat chance double exclamation mark powerful stuff there from Ian Power- you can powerful see why stuff, he's yes. demanded a credit uh, for the writing on Attack of the Cybermen I mean this is quality stuff the whole thing about uh, Trial of a Time Lord arriving from the Doctor's future and leaving with him in the present that's called timey-wimey Ian Ian didn't know it but he was predicting the future of the show yeah some of it's quite uh, it's not particularly pleasant is it really I, look I suppose we all work with people who we don't like and we sort of backstab them later but mm. It's just needlessly personal, isn't it, sometimes? It is, and uh, unfortunately, uh, DWB was the tome in which this uh, stuff was printed in. And and as ever, it, when Ian actually has something sensible to say, it's drowned in a tone of hysteria, which just detracts from what he's had to say. Mm. Um, well, that, that's all I'll say on that. That's all I'll say on that. That's enough dragging up, I think. Uh, we, hope, we hope you enjoyed that dip through yesteryear. Uh, we're going to keep going with it. We'll... Uh, I've got 
another 80 issues of DWB to get through. So Don't be I, so apologetic, Mark. We're saving people from having to trawl eBay for issues of DWB and other fanzines. That's right. If you would like a full episode dedicated to drag from the archives, let us know. And believe us, we'll get the gim- we will wear the gym suits for an hour if need be. Before we go, Rob, we've got some letters, so let's cue inappropriate theme music. You've got mail. The first one we have, Rob, is uh, via our underutilised Facebook page by Billy Kirkbright. Hello, Billy. He's from Perth. Uh, he says, hi, Mark and Rob. Well, due to my curiosity, I went against your advice and listened to an earlier episode of 42 Doomsday. Episode 1, in fact, where you spoke of the Capaldi Doctor and his casting. It was fine. Laugh out loud. Billy, uh, you are a hero for going back that early and listening uh, to that particular podcast. Do you go back and listen to earlier episodes of what we've done before, Rob? My ego is overinflated enough as it is, Mark, so I I don't want to burst it by (laughs) by listening to myself pontificate overly (laughs) on Doctor Who. Uh, As as people could probably pick up, we do do edit the the episode uh, just to keep it, uh, you know, clean it up. And I do enjoy listening back to the final edit. Um, but um, there's enough podcasts out there and on my MP3 player that I can't really justify listening to me myself <laughs> for the third time <laughs> talk about Doctor Who because um, it uh, it just yeah. gets a bit much. But uh, yeah, go, uh, look, you know, everyone has to start somewhere, and um, uh, we were you know pretty rough around the edges uh, at the beginning, and we're probably <laughs> still a bit rough around the edges now. Yes, but uh, I, I can't actually believe that we've done. Was it 36 or 37 of these? I think. Yeah. Jesus. Also, thank you to Andrew Smith for uh, being our guest last episode. It was uh, a fantastic uh, chat with him. Yes, I hope it came through in the interview that uh, Andrew was very easy to talk with and uh, or talk to, and um, it was a pleasure having him on. And uh, as we said uh, during the interview, hopefully in the next uh, you know little while or year or two, as his career expands, uh, hopefully expands, and I'm sure it will, uh, we can get him back on to talk about stuff uh, other than Doctor Who because. Um, I'm sure. I'm sure uh, he'll be keen to uh, talk about any new stuff that he does. Have we got one more letter there, Rob? We do. We have uh, David from uh, Melbourne, uh, long-time correspondent and listener. Hello, David. Hello, David. It uh, begins, dear forty tours. Once again, I'm using my annual leave to travel overseas. I learnt somewhere as a boy that travel broadens the mind, and enjoyed the company of your biographies podcast on my drive from LA to San Francisco. I agree that books by Sayward and Dix could be great, but in the end, I think it's the biographies rather than the autobiographies that will always give us the most honest insights. Hence, I'm looking forward to the Lambert and Ainley biogs this year. But it's your Death in Heaven comments that prompted me to write. After a shaky start with a comedy Sontara, and I really enjoyed Capaldi's first season as the Doctor. There were a lot of stories that were just fun to watch, and his Doctor is at least interesting. Then came Death in Heaven. I'll resist the temptation to go all comic store guy on you and say, worst episode ever but it is the episode that has annoyed me the most the female master the iron patriot flying cartoon cyberman the gratuitous tease that clara might be the doctor the love conquers all defeat of the cyberman by cyber danny and the bizarre voice from the dead stuff from god danny if you were to write a list of all the things that would annoy me in an episode death in heaven would tick every box plus the central plot of missy gifting the doctor a cyber army was nonsense which leads me to wonder is this a deliberate move by moffat he no doubt is aware that there are old school or traditional fans out there that have been critical of his approach to the show, especially in se- Series 6. 
was death in heaven his message to these fans that he'll do the show his way and if they don't like it they should bugger off I hope not but I can't think of another reason why Moffat would trample on childhood memories of favourite villains and characters like this when there was really no need especially at the end of a season that was such fun series 8 really has brought me back to the show in many ways so I hope I'm wrong about this one story I look forward to your thoughts and advice David in Melbourne have you gone back to watch Death in Heaven Rob? No, I, I don't hate myself that much, Mark. C- series 8 was uh, a step up and forward for the for the show. I think uh, Capaldi hit the ground running, more or less, and uh, it, there was a consistent... Uh, this is widely acknowledged, so I'm not you know making anything, uh, saying anything new. Consistent run of, of quality stories um, characterised by you know better writing, better acting, and, uh, and, 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 and just a sort of a, a holistic approach that really worked. Uh, Death in Heaven detracts from that but doesn't ruin it it does unfortunately uh leave a a bad taste in my mouth even now um and it uh it's just objectionable on a number of levels um you know you know the 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 use of the brigadier um turning an iconic male villain into a female um cue screaming from across the internet i just think that you have an iconic villain like the master is iconic not because of his villainy but because of his look because he's he's male it's you know it's the whole sherlock holmes moriarty um uh, rivalry that works there because they're two males butting heads and it's not it, it just it just just feels wrong to me not you know it just feels wrong that the, the master has been is now a female I, I just i do not like that um and the cybermen are incidental to the story the, the the nonsensical you know the, as, as as david said about god speaking from the dead basically and, and that boy who danny killed coming back to life even though i don't understand how that could be i just don't understand how that could be i mean you need to go know, back and watch it i don't want to go back and watch it i don't, I don't need want to, to go under, <laughs> i don't need to understand you know nonsense by watching it again have you gone back and watched it mark god no i mentioned before when i was talking about gridlock you know moffat and rtd are fans so the things he's doing in terms of changing the master to a woman, um, you know, gets gets national headlines. And they're bring obviously they're bringing Missy back in the first two episodes of season nine um, because apparently she is a, a, a quote a hit. Uh, I don't know who she's a hit with, but um, obviously she's a hit with somebody. So they're bringing her back. It still doesn't sit well with me the whole that whole episode, to be perfectly honest. And I'm I'm not in a rush to go back and watch it and watch it again. I mean, I understand, and I understand your point where, you know, Davies and Moffat have stewardship of the show and it's stewardship in the 21st century and not the 20th century. And they've, they feel, I suppose, that they need to update the show to keep it appealing and, you know, having a female protagonist uh, or antagonist, sorry, uh, in the shape of a female master uh, is the way that they saw to go. I think they're wrong. But then I'm a Doctor Who fan <laughs> sitting in an office in Melbourne and they're running the show in Cardiff. So what do I know? But uh, yeah, uh, for all the reasons I've <laughs> propounded um, this podcast and previous podcasts, uh, I just I do not like it. And um, it's telling that uh, uh, another script editor with um, with lengthy experience with the show, Terence Dix, in the... Um, I think in the introduction to The Forgotten Son, which is the first book in that new Brigadier series from Candy Jar Books, uh, I think I, I recall touches on, you know, uh, the use of the Brigadier 
uh, in, a, in a sort of a negative way. He, he, I don't think he was very pleased, and I think that's also mentioned, uh, that was discussed at these convention p- appearance here, and th- this is the man who worked with the man and and uh, and wrote for him and, and, and I suppose knew him socially. So look at, the, you know, at the end of the day, it's Doctor Who and it's fiction, but it just doesn't sit right with me. It's a shame, though, because uh, as we said before, Series 8 was the strongest one for, for quite a while and we go into series nine with high hopes and you know from what we understand is they're going to go have more two-parters which i'm, I'm fine with that shake it up a bit without an arc are you going to watch the first two episodes of series nine <laughs> is it missy and the penanostra oh, gang or not God. That'd be, oh, yeah. God. yes it probably will be I, they're, they're popular within a certain segment of fandom who probably fit into a phone book these days <laughs> a phone box these days yeah um it, yeah, no, I'll, I'll watch it. I'll watch it. I mean, it's Capaldi or Capaldi. It's it's the man. You know, yeah. he's the man. He's he uh, he's great. He's great. Like many of his predecessors, makes any old crap watchable. I just I have a, I have a question. Hmm. At the end of uh, Death in Heaven, yep, where the Doctor is by himself and he's in the TARDIS and Santa Claus turns up, yep, is he in that dream state already? And if that's true, how long has he been in that dream state? I'm just curious because. He, he sort of leaves Clara and then walks into the TARDIS and my memory is this, that that's what happens and then um, Santa turns up and it's it clearly that's a f- the, from the dream state but um, is Moffat playing a long game again I'll just ask I don't know it's probably like the Tesselector in series 6 that started regenerating when he had no regenerations left well that's it but if anyone who's listening has a convenient explanation for that <laughs> In a couple yeah. of minutes, I'll be I'll be reading out the contact points. So please get in touch with us. We appreciate that because it means we'd have to go back and watch it. Yeah, save us the experience, save us scarring our souls yet again. Yeah. All right, this is a bit of a downer to finish the episode off, but uh, I hope you've all enjoyed our, uh, our look back at some of the underrated episodes of Doctor Who and and uh, some of our fandoms more interesting meanderings uh, from the mid '80s. So to finish off, I've been sunburnt, and I've not been in the South Pacific. <laughs> and I haven't found any missing episodes if you ask just just let them go Phil please <laughs> please let them go <laughs> just give us the address to the lockup, and we'll, we'll do the rest do it for the children <laughs> and after that emotional high I've been Mark I've been Rob we'll speak with you again soon You've just listened to another episode of 42 to Doomsday, the podcast that loves talking about Doctor Who. We'd love to hear from our listeners. Please drop us a line at 42 to Doomsday at gmail.com. We can be reached at facebook.com forward slash 42 to Doomsday. If brevity is your game, we can be found on Twitter at 42 to Doomsday. Please check out our blog, 42 to Doomsday.wordpress.com, where Mark and I occasionally have something interesting to say. Aside from iTunes, you can listen to us via Stitcher and Player FM. If you enjoyed listening to us, leave a review on iTunes. As always, thank you for listening. Have a great week. We'll speak with you again soon.